Hi everyone, welcome back to the Singapore Noodles podcast. I hope all of you had a great Christmas. My Christmas was really good. I had a few close friends over and I managed to cook them a meal. And this was, I think, the second time having people over since COVID. So it's been months since I had people at our house and it was just a really lovely, intimate, cozy time. Really, really enjoyed myself because usually in Singapore when we celebrate Christmas with family, it's always a big affair. It's always a huge party and it's, you know, just really stressful for everyone. So it was nice to uh, kind of take things easy this year and to have things be a little bit more cozy, which is how I like it anyway. So since it's the end of the year, I thought I'll do something different and share a little bit more of myself and also share about the journey of Singapore Noodle so far. I've been running it for 10 months and so I feel like this year has been really long and very a very educational one for me. I'll take some time as well to answer some of the questions that you guys have been asking me. So I guess I'll start with the first question, which is, were you helping out in the kitchen at a young age? And I think this is a question that I get a lot from um, from interviewers uh, and from the media in general. I think for me, even though I had a curiosity in the kitchen, uh, cooking was not something that was um, really special at that point. I feel like I was a very hands-on kind of kid. I loved um, doing arts and crafts. I remember my my favorite TV show at that point was Art Attack. And I used to watch it and I used to make paper mache and things like that. And I would have um, science experiment kits and I would have like a, a toy loom where I could weave things. And, and I just love being in the outdoors in general because my house was connected to Macritchie Reservoir. So I had access to the forest and I would go there very regularly to kind of catch ants, catch caterpillars, which I would keep as pets and things like that. So cooking was another thing that, um, it was a hobby, but it wasn't a huge hobby. It was just like uh, one of those many things that I occupied myself with I remember trying to help my mom out in the kitchen and it was always a very frustrating process for me because I think even at a, at a young age, even though I was like kind of like a messy, wild kid, I loved being methodical about learning. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I did so well academically because I was very methodical about things. And so when I approached cooking and when I approached learning from my mom, I wanted to kind of, you know, have a textbook kind of education where she would tell me exactly how much to put in, how long to cook things for. But my mom in the kitchen, it's just like any other Asian woman, right? It's very aga-aga. So it was always like, I, I think if you watch the Instagram live um, cook along with my mom, you realize that she's extremely intuitive when she's cooking. She doesn't measure, she doesn't write anything down. She used to have this recipe book that she wrote herself. Like she used to keep all her recipes in it. But it was really more like a grocery list than recipes. And so it really frustrated me and I didn't want to learn how to cook anything local because of that. It really, really put me off. And, and I think because of my methodical nature and wanting to learn things, I decided to, to learn more about Western cooking and baking because Western cookbooks at that, at that time was 
they were extremely good. They they really took you by the hand. They really showed you all the steps in creating a dish. There, there used to be step-by-step -step photos and everything was made from scratch. You know, you they showed you how to make chicken stock. They showed you how to make a pan sauce from, from roasting a chicken. Whereas for local cookbooks, I felt very frustrated because uh, there were so many shortcuts. It was always, oh, use chicken powder or use like Maggie, you know, Maggie seasoning and or like a gnaw cube. And I didn't like that. I really wanted to know how things were made from scratch. For me, it was all or nothing, you know. It was either I learn how to make the best thing or I don't learn at all. And so that was how I got into Western cooking and baking at a young age. I remember my first... Um, my first culinary idol, in a sense, was Jamie Oliver. So my aunt had bought me a Jamie Oliver CD. Uh, I think it was like Naked Chef or something. And I was just so amazed by the way he approached cooking. Um, and I really threw myself into it. And so I started cooking in primary school, but it was always... Uh, things that my mom wasn't good at. I love making western pastas and risottos and things like that and I love baking because I knew that those things my mom wasn't great at so she couldn't criticize anything that I made because I feel that when it comes to cooking the moment a senior member of the family or, or someone in general criticizes you, you really get your confidence really down and you just feel like whatever you do is not good enough so I think that was what really put me off local food. The fact that if I were to attempt making something like chicken rice at home, you know, people were going to criticize it because it's never going to be as good as the hawker version. You know, I, I feel that one trait when it comes to uh, Cantonese women in general, uh, like my mom, she's extremely traditional Cantonese, uh, and she comes from an extremely traditional Cantonese family, is that they feel that... Um, they are extremely is that they are extremely blunt and straight with their opinion. So if they feel like something is not good, they'll tell you, or you know they would be extremely scant with praise. So they would even if there's something, even if the dish is generally good, they would give you feedback um, to help you improve. So for me, I think I was always like very sensitive in general. And so I didn't like that kind of feedback. And so I tried to do things that they had no experience in or had no experience cooking or eating. And so they couldn't say anything. So that was how I got my start with cooking. That said, I feel that my mom has really made me the the cook that I am today or the foodie that I am today. The first thing that she instilled in me was adventurousness in eating. I think that is very, very important for any cook to have because you can't be a great chef or you can't be a great cook if you're not inquisitive in the kitchen or as an eater, you know? If you don't want to try everything on the table, um, if your mind is very close to flavor combinations, then you know, whatever you cook will always lack something, I feel. Another thing that she gave me was the understanding that having an opinion about food is very important. I don't consider my, my mom like a really, really, really great cook. But what she has is a very refined palate. 
And when I say refined, I mean that she has high standards when it comes to cooking and she can tell you exactly what is wrong with the dish. Um, we, we used to have family lunches on Sundays at restaurants. Uh, she would love going to Cantonese restaurants like Li Pai. And she would always point out when the food didn't taste quite right. So she would be like, uh, I think the chef forgot to add sugar to the dish to balance it out. Or she would say something like, oh, I think this, uh, this meat needs another five minutes. So it's a double-edged sword because when it came to me cooking, I felt a lot of, you know, I felt like I had to constantly get her approval. Uh, I remember one of the last dishes that I cooked for her before I moved to Australia was one of her favorite dishes, which was mee siam. She grew up eating this at her school canteen and she used to make this uh, for her friends at parties. And even though it was a signature dish, I didn't think it was like super amazing, but still she has very high standards when it comes to uh, her eating experience of mee siam. So when I gave it to her, she was like, Oh, you know, I think you have to put the shallots in at the last minute so they will have that crunch. Same goes for the, the bean sprouts. And I think there should be a bit more asam to, to kind of balance out the, the sweetness and the umami flavors of the dish. Uh, so things like that, you know, it can be very annoying sometimes. But I feel that ultimately uh, that has really shaped me into having really high standards for food in a good way, I feel. Because I feel that as a cook... Uh, if you have very low standards for yourself and very low standards of what deliciousness means to you, then your food will, will always be mediocre, I guess. So I've received a few other questions about my work at Candlenut. And for those of you who don't know, um, I used to work there for about a year or so, um, right before I moved to Australia. And... Uh, Candlenut is a modern Peranakan restaurant, so it basically reinvents um, traditional Peranakan dishes like ayam buah keluak, um, like babi bongte, and presents it in a more refined format. I think one of the major differences um, working at Candlenut was how visceral it all was. The restaurant that I was working at before Candlenut was Lola Palooza, and it was a modern European restaurant. We had a wood-fired oven, marble top benches to work on, um, so it was really like refined. It was open kitchen, whereas for Candlenut it was closed kitchen, and you had like the roar of the wok every time someone ordered a wok fried dish. So that was very different, you know. It was very visceral and. Uh, a lot of the dishes that we cooked took a lot of effort. So things like um, making curry dishes or making rendang or making nohyang. So it was it was a lot of the dishes were a team effort. So for example, to make nohyang for service, uh, we we made a huge quantity, maybe like I don't know, ten kilos of of meat. Um, so it would be like. Um, people jumping on together to 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 cut water chestnuts to cut prawns uh to pound the pork to wrap the rolls to steam the rolls you know it was like a full kitchen affair so everyone had to jump on that um or things like making kueh paiti filling where it was like a huge batch of uh bangkwang you know 
So maybe someone would make the prawn stock and then someone else, uh, maybe three people would be on the bangkwang cutting. Um, and it will take a few days, you know, uh, to get it ready. Even something like making a, making sambal. Because the quantities that we're making were so huge and it was so laborious to cut everything, to blend everything. So it was really eye-opening for me and to hear that there were some customers who said things like, um, why are you guys charging for sambal balachan? You know, when I go to the hawker center, I get it for free. So you shouldn't be charging. So it was really eye-opening because... I guess if I had never worked at Canona, I wouldn't see the amount of labor that goes into it. And I would never understand um, the importance of charging money for something like that. You know, it, it still blows my mind that so many hawkers are giving away chili for free or that hawker food is so cheap. So I think that was um, a huge shift. Uh, when it comes to what I specifically learned from Kettle Nut, I think the biggest thing would be understanding rempa. Because I feel like it's so unlike any other cooking technique um, in the West. So I mean in the West you have things like sofrito, you have mirepoix, but I think rempa is entirely different because first of all, um, different people have different ways of cooking rempa and also I think it takes a lot of experience to know when a rempa is right. So I remember when I first started making rempa, I was never using enough oil so you never ever get what they call a mincemeat texture um, which, is, which comes with the rempa looking split and with oil kind of surfacing and breaking through the surface. I was also not frying my rempa long enough. So I think this is especially crucial when you're making a big batch of rempa is to cook the rempa out enough. Um, and so I saw a lot of similarities then between Western techniques and, and Asian techniques as much as there were differences. So for example, so when you are cooking rempa, as you are cooking it, it will darken and darken. And I think that comes from when the rempa catches on the side of the pot and sticks to it and you actually have to scrape it. And that bit that is being scraped in gradually makes the paste darken in colour. And that is very similar to the Western technique of, of um, making a fond, you know. I was reading one of my favorite Italian cookbooks called Cooking by Hand by Paul Batoli and he talks about how, you know, it's so important to build that layer uh, of, of caramelization as you go so you get a lot of flavor. So I, I think um, understanding both worlds really help me understanding cooking in general and not see it as a dichotomy, you know, not seeing these two worlds as separate, but seeing how they can, how the same principles and same concepts have, can be applied in different ways. So the next question is about the handle name, um, Singapore noodles, or some people like to call it SGP noodles instead, which I find very funny. Um, so... I think to answer this question, I have to go back to the start of 2020 and how it all started. Um, so before this year, we were actually living in Melbourne City. We had been living in the city for about 
two years at that point. We moved to Melbourne initially because Wax was doing his master's in agricultural sciences. Um, he just felt like the agricultural industry in Singapore was not that established uh, and, and he really wanted to get more expertise um, to learn about agriculture. So he did his master's here and I moved over with him uh, because I had never lived abroad in my life. I had never gone on exchange. I had never gone abroad other than, the, other than for the purpose of having a holiday. So my colleague Ron at Canona was always talking about how Singapore is such a small fish pond and when you get out there you realise how big the world really is. So we moved to Melbourne and we had been living here for a while and it was funny because every time we went to an Asian restaurant you would always see Singapore noodles on the menu and I was like what is this Singapore noodles? I mean like I know what it is but I could never bring myself to order it because I know, you know, I know that it's not Singaporean and maybe I should try. But anyway, um, Singapore noodles is this dish that is a turmeric noodle stir fry with lots of seafood and you never ever see this in Singapore. I think it's a, it's something that Caucasians eat way more than Asians, in my opinion. But I, I may be wrong. So after graduating, Wax found a job in a seed breeding company, which is like his dream job. And it was located out here in Dalesford. And we continued to live in the city. And he was making commutes of like three hours a day, moving back and forth between work and home. And I think eventually he was so exhausted. And we decided that it would be best if we were to move to the countryside to to make it easier on him and also I guess for myself it was like a fresh start and it was something different um, I, but I thought I was quite worried about it because in the city you have access to like all these great restaurants it's so convenient and in the countryside there are no buses there are no trams there are no taxis uh, everyone drives or walks and I can't drive and so my accessibility is just limited to what we have in town. I can't travel out of town. Um, I can't go to places that are too far away. So I think that was my biggest hesitation. So right before we moved to Dalesford, because it felt like such a big change, I felt like I needed to kind of write resolutions for myself, like what I want to see in my life. And it was like right smack at the start of the year. So I did it. And one of the things that, that I wrote down was that I wanted to start kind of like a like a, a Southeast Asian Food 52 or Southeast Asian Bon Appetit. And I think this was something that I have been I've been thinking about for a long time because it plays to my strength of of doing research, of um, recipe development, of you know you know, it just satisfies my curiosity because uh, I even though I was working as a chef, I spent my days off cooking uh, things that really interested me. And in the past year or so, it had been uh, cooking food from home because I was so homesick. You know, I really miss Singaporean food. Um, and so I was thinking, since I was doing it so much on my days off, why not make something of it? You know, rather than keep the recipes in my notebook, why not publish it as a resource for people? Um, and at that point, I think um, the main 
um, desire to start something like that was first of all representation. I felt like you know, Singaporeans back home knew so much about the technicalities of Western food. You know, people were making croissants, they were making entremets, souffles, pastas, risottos, but they hardly cooked anything Singaporean. And even if you don't cook, you probably know more about how Western dishes are made uh, compared to food from home. So things like, if we are just strictly talking about ferments, you probably know more about sourdough than you do tose, you know, and I'm, I'm guilty of that too. So I really wanted it to be a learning journey for myself as well because um, even though I had worked in Candlenut, I still feel, I still felt like my understanding of Singaporean food was so narrow. Like I only really experimented or really cooked i only really cooked uh chinese food at home you know food from my dialect group so i really wanted to challenge myself and also to present like a trusted resource for people you know i was thinking to myself why is it that when i feel like making say uh carbonara i have go-to resources on the internet you know um but why is it that when i want to make something like uh, haka salt baked chicken there is no trusted resource for that you know and there is so little information so I think that, that was one of the first driving factors but the other driving factor was a lot more personal so I'm now 29 and I feel like I'm at, at that age where I'm increasingly realizing that working as a chef is not sustainable anymore um, I mean from the start of being a professional cook uh, I understood that there had to be major sacrifices, um, you know, when it came to social life, when it came to salary. And I feel like it wasn't just me bearing the brunt of sacrificing for my passion, but the people around me were also sacrificing, you know, when I couldn't make it for for gatherings or when I couldn't go for someone's wedding or when I couldn't uh, celebrate someone's birthday so I think it posed a strain on our relationship especially when Wax was working in Singapore he was working at um, at this company in Changi so he had to he had to wake up really really early every day to get to work on time he would wake up at like six or seven and by the time evening or night came came around I think he was like exhausted and I was you know I was the reverse I mean I started work pretty late in the day like maybe 10 a.m and I would go home at night and maybe reach home at like 12. When I was working as a chef in Melbourne it was the same I mean it posed a strain on our marriage because you you could you know it was like everyone had to bend backwards because of my vocation as a chef and I felt like it wasn't worth it and also because when I entered the industry my dream was to open a restaurant, but the more I worked in the industry, the more I feel like that isn't my dream anymore. I don't want to open a restaurant and that isn't the life that I see for myself because there are so many things that um, that I don't agree with in the industry and also I always identify more as a home cook than a restaurant cook because even when I was working at, at, at restaurants, the, the parts of working as a restaurant cook that would make me the happiest was staff meal when I could feed everyone. 
And so I, I, I think, you know, that was very telling of my own identity of who I was as a cook. And so I, I really wanted to start this thing because it was something that I was really passionate about. And I really wanted to do, I, I really wanted to invest more time and more effort into this, you know, in making this uh, platform something that can be sustainable in the future. So about the name Singapore Noodles, I think it was my way of being cheeky because it was so ironic that um, I would choose this pseudo-Asian dish name to be the name of a platform that celebrates the food that Singaporeans really eat in Singapore. So yeah, I really, really love the name and you know, I, I like that people are loving it too and I, I guess it's only people who have lived abroad that would catch the reference, I, I guess, because if you live in Singapore, you wouldn't really know what Singapore noodles really is. Like, I told my grandmother about this um, platform and she was like, what is Singapore noodles? Like, which noodle you want? We got so many noodles. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I think it's very funny and very cute. So when Singapore noodles first started, I think it was such a different platform to what it is now because it was extremely small scale it was just it was just me kind of posting about posting pictures and recipes of the dishes that I cooked but now it has kind of expanded into a podcast into properly shot videos into insta stories with narration um, into merchandise even with the planner and so I, I think it really blew my mind because I've always been a person who has been obsessed with uh, being a perfectionist. So so for me, I think when I don't care about things, then I can get quite sloppy. But when I really do things that I care about, I become extremely um, perfectionist and, and meticulous about it. And so with Singapore noodles, I think it was a huge exercise in, uh, in being okay with not being perfect. So I remember when the platform first started, the Instagram posts were horrible. The website till now doesn't look 100% the way I want it to look. Um, but I think what I realized is that if you're so obsessed with perfection and with things being 100% perfect in the way that you want it, then you'll never ever start and you'll never ever make something. I think one of my traits is that I can be very, very, very self-conscious. And, you know, for that reason, you'll never see many photos of me on my personal Instagram. Um, I don't like putting myself out there. I'm very risk adverse. Um, so it was actually my sister who encouraged me to make videos. And so that's how it all started actually, like um, me filming my cooking process and it getting a lot of good feedback. I remember the very, very first video that I did was for curry puffs. And when I put it online, I was surprised at how much traction it got and how many people were actually making it and talking about it. I find it really um, mind-blowing that now I feel pretty comfortable with uh, with recording a narration that go with my cooking Insta stories. And now, you know, me even talking to you through this podcast, I, I think it's really incredible because I remember the first few times I, I did 
the recorded Insta stories. I would go over it again and again and I would record it again and again just so that, you know, I don't sound too stupid, that I sounded like the way I wanted to sound, you know. But now I feel like I'm a lot more compassionate with myself. I'm a lot Oh, I'm a lot more okay with me not looking or sounding perfect. Yeah, so I think that is the number one thing that I would recommend anyone who is starting to do something for themselves is to be more, be kinder to yourself, to not subject yourself to like really lofty aspirations. Just put in the work and, and that's it. I think another thing that I'm really grateful for with Singapore noodles is now I'm cooking a lot more diversely than I ever have. So this was spurred on by a conversation that I had with Sam, uh, one of my friends. And she said that, you know, you should try to focus more on the lesser known cuisines like Eurasian cuisine or Chetty, Chetty Malacan cuisine. And to be honest, I had never heard of Chetty Malacans before starting Singapore noodles. And I think in so doing, I, I've discovered just how beautiful our cuisine is. Because I mean, if you think of it just in terms of Chinese cooking, then I mean, how boring must that be, right? I mean, the beauty of living in Singapore is that you have access to all this uh, different food. So I think it's a real disservice to our cuisine if I were to only focus on Chinese food or to only cook within my dialect group. Yeah, so I, I think, so it's been amazing because every time I cook food that is outside of my dialect group or outside of my ethnicity, I always get really positive encouragement and tips. So, um, you know, previously when I was making biryani and when I was making tose, I love it when I get like all these comments from the from from Indian viewers, you know, or even my Parsi friend Gulnas, you know, it's amazing like that she that all of them started dropping me really valuable tips. And I think that goes to making Singapore noodles a better platform, you know, because it's not founded on the strength or the cooking ability of just one person but it's it's just an honest recount of my journey of learning through you know all this information that I'm getting from the community and and that that is also another thing that I love you know about doing Singapore noodles and the fact that it's still so small you know that I get to have very personal uh, connections with people you know, I get to hear from the ground from actual Singaporeans about why they're not cooking, about uh, why uh, they find it so intimidating, what are some of the struggles they go through, and that helps me to make Singapore noodles a better platform. I remember um, just a month or two ago, I think I was feeling very discouraged about about my efforts. I was just thinking, you know, is there any point in me doing this? Because it's just me documenting my journey and putting it out there and you know do people actually need this re resource and it was really lovely to hear what everyone had to say um it was so nice to hear what singapore noodles means to all of you um to have um affirmation of what i'm doing approval you know that <laughs> i've been seeking all my life that's so funny yeah but i i think it's so it really warmed my heart and it made me feel like I was going to cry when I received all those messages. And so, yeah, thank you all for, for
for that. And, and recently when people were picking up planners from Tingyi, I think Tingyi recently told me that someone actually went up to her and said that they saw my post about me being discouraged and they wanted to tell Tingyi um, to let me know to not feel to not feel discouraged because after people reach a certain age, they start appreciating local food. But I guess for me, it was always, you know, would that be too late? I feel a huge sense of urgency because I already, I, I see how much has been lost already, you know, how my brother's generation doesn't know what is a kueh paiti or doesn't know what, what uncle kueh is, you know, it scares me. So I, I feel that with every generation, there is more and more being lost and I think it just feels very overwhelming sometimes to think that Singapore noodles is just like, you know, this small thing trying to stop this inevitable tide. But of course, there are so many people out there who are also believing in the mission, who are helping to preserve and keep Singaporean food heritage alive in their own ways. And I'm very lucky to have met so many of them and to have conversed with them uh, through the podcast, you know. Um, people like Tahira, people like um, like Chef Debagi, people like uh, Alestia. I mean, people from all walks of life, really. So it's very encouraging to know that I'm not doing this alone. So someone asked if I would have Chef Malcolm on as a guest in the future on the podcast. And um, so for those of you who don't know, Chef Malcolm is the chef owner of um, Candlenut, which is the restaurant that I was talking about earlier. And he has definitely left a really uh, deep imprint in um, the way that I look at food, particularly local food, you know, because he has always been saying how we should be as proud of our kueh as we are of, you know, Western dishes that our local dishes deserve a place at the global table. And that's something that I really believe in as well. And that has really made a mark on me. The way he loves his curry and rice, something that is so um, so simple and so elemental for many Singaporeans, you know. I, I feel that he really understands what it means to love Singaporean food and to be proud of your heritage. I would definitely love to have him on the podcast at some point of time you know, uh, but I don't actively, you know, for me on the podcast, I feel like my process for selecting guests is always very organic. It's not really that planned. It's always, you know, if I feel at that point of time that I have a certain affinity for, you know, having a chat with a, with a person, maybe it's, you know, I've been following them on Instagram and then they post something that, make me go, oh, okay, I should definitely talk to them soon, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely have, have like, uh, like dream guests on the show. Uh, recently, I just recorded an episode with KFCito and that was super amazing because he had been my idol for the longest time. I wouldn't say idol, but I mean, I have been watching him on TV for the longest time and uh, I just love how he's so unabashedly Singaporean. He speaks Singlish. He eats food, you know, in, in such an unbridled manner. And to have him on the show and to like, you know, like be so 
open to my questions. I think that was really something special. For some reason, it feels like I'm coming full circle in a way. So the last question that I'll be answering on this episode would be how do you think we can elevate hawker food in an atas way while maintaining familiarity? So I get this question asked all the time as well and usually it's from NUS researchers and um, my answer is that it's not about elevating it in an atas way. Um, I, I think it's always being relevant whatever product that you're trying to put out whether it's a plate of hawker food or whether it's a you know whether it's singapore noodles as a platform trying to encourage people to cook i think it's always understanding what people like what people need understanding what people react to and uh positioning whatever you feel strongly about and feel passionate about in that way so, so in that sense, you know, running a hawker business or, or being a cook is really just like being any other business person or entrepreneur, you know, it's really understanding your customer. And so I think a very good example that I like is uh, this hawker, this Guetap hawker called Melvin. I've previously published an interview with him on Singapore Noodles on the website um, and, and he has been really great at innovating and breathing new life into old school dishes. So he says that kway chap is actually quite an uncle dish. But what he has done is that he made it into like a kway chap bento and he also did um, a chang, you know, like a glutinous rice dumpling that is filled with law up, which is braised duck. Usually it's filled with uh, braised pork. But I, I thought it was so inventive that he made a duck version of that. And, you know, his business is apparently doing really well because he's able to, to understand what consumers want. And so I think ultimately um, it is about uh, making it relevant. But also there has to be... Um, you can't just chase relevance without having any substance or without having any soul you know so i mean at the start of uh, singapore noodles like i even had some suggestions on uh, for me to make a, a local version of dalgona coffee just because it was viral and i think you know if i were to do that that would completely be a sellout in my opinion you know so i, I think for for hawkers it's the same you know you you don't just chase whatever is viral whatever is looking good on instagram even though you still have that in mind so i feel like he does it very well oh my god i've been speaking for the past half an hour and i never realized how tiring it is to just speak um so i'm gonna wrap this up quickly but before I go, I'm going to share with you some of the plans that I have for Singapore noodles in the new year. So remember how just now I was talking about how I was, um, I about how I posted this um, Instagram story about me feeling very discouraged that Singaporeans are not cooking and that I received a lot of messages about, you know, from, from people who don't cook local and why, why they do not. And so I think it gave me a lot more compassion and a lot more understanding for this demographic. And I really want to produce something that helps, something that would help people gain confidence in the kitchen. And the way I see it, 
you know, it's not just going to be a collection of recipes, but it would really be something that's educational. And I'm working together with one of my favorite artists, which is um, Mary Bernadette Lee. I'm not sure if you guys know about her, but I really, really, really love her work. It's amazing. And, you know, she has become a friend to me, and I'm so happy that we're able to work together. We are still in our preliminary stages of discussing and brainstorming, so I don't want to share too many details yet, but keep your eyes peeled. This would probably be a product that will be dropping in the middle of next year. So another thing that I'm doing is in collaboration with Spicy Kitchen um, with Tahira. Uh, if you listen to our podcast last episode, you would probably know about this, but we're starting this initiative slash movement called Pass the Pasa. So what it is, is we are encouraging people to go into their local neighborhood wet market to take photos of the wet markets, essentially bringing us along uh, on their little excursion and to spot an ingredient that strikes you or that inspires you, to take a photo of that and bring it home and cook something with it and share that journey with us. I feel very excited about this because it's something that my book wasn't able to do. So quite a few people know that I published this cookbook called Wet Market to Table. But because the produce in our wet markets, you know, there's so many of it and there's so many of them and there are so many wet markets. I can't possibly, you know, capture the complexity uh, and the richness and the diversity of our markets in one book. So the way we see this it's going to be like a crowdsourced kind of movement where everyone goes to their wet markets and share shares their experience. So it will be like you going to the wet market, taking photos, tagging Singapore noodles and, and um, Spicy Kitchen and then we can repost. And then you can also tag people to continue uh, to keep this movement going, you know, to literally like pass the pasta to someone else. That's something that we're working on. And also, another thing that I'm planning to start in the new year is Zoom classes. So, you know, I feel like I've chatted with a lot of you on Instagram, but I have never chatted with you in person. And I don't know how you guys look like, you know. It's so funny because I know you guys through your Instagram handles, but I don't really know your names. I don't know how you look like and so it would be so nice to have like a real life almost real life interaction with you through an online zoom class and I'm thinking of keeping this very small to begin with I'm thinking you know every month I'll have one class teaching you how to cook something and that, that class will be just limited to maybe five people so maybe just teaching five people every month so I will be announcing these classes in my newsletter uh, I don't think I want to make it public on Instagram just because it's only gonna it's only gonna be five people every month, um, and so um, if you're interested, then sign up for the newsletter. It's sgpnoodles.substack.com. Otherwise, you can go to sgpnoodles.com and scroll down. There is actually a a box for you to sign up um, for the newsletter. 
Um, so that's one thing. And of course, we're going to have more online classes um, put up. I'm very excited because I want to share so many things with you guys, particularly for Chinese New Year, which is coming up. I'm very excited about that. Um, you know, there are so many festive dishes that are special um, over, over this period. Yeah, and another question that I've received is about the planner. Someone asked if I'm going to um, produce another planner next year. So this is something that I'm still thinking about because creating a physical product is very fulfilling, but it's also very, very scary. You know, this was my first uh, foray into into e-commerce and it's it's been really wonderful, but it's a lot of work and, you know, maybe it's the first time, but we're still figuring out systems that would make the whole process easier. And, you know, I'm very happy to see so many of you enjoying your planners. I just used, started using mine yesterday and yeah, I'm very excited for the new year and for everyone to share pictures of, of you guys cooking from the planner and for, um, of, of you guys actually using your planner so i just want to say a big thank you to everyone who purchased the planner who have gifted the planner to to a friend or to a loved one to me sustainability of the platform is always at the forefront of what i'm thinking about because as much as i love doing it it's my passion you know ultimately it does take a lot of time it does take a lot of resources and energy out of me and so, you know, I would really love for it to be a more sustainable platform. So thank you, all of you. And I think that's it. You know, that wraps up my my podcast for the year. And I'm very excited to um, have more episodes in the new year and to share more of my cooking adventures with you guys. It's been such a journey. So thank you so much. And I'll see you in 2021. <laughs>